0: So during my time in seminary, I lived in and Springs, Michigan. How many of you have been to and Springs, Michigan? I don't mean to pick on Michigan, you guys. I really don't. Like, I feel like I get up here and I'm just lamenting Michigan. It's not a lament. It's just a matter of fact. and Springs is just, it's just it's a small place. If you blink, you will miss it. In fact, when I was moving there, I got there at about 11 p.m., and I drove by the school four times before I saw it, and drove through downtown Berrien Springs three or four times before I realized that I would actually passed through Berrien Springs. But being from a bigger city, Vegas, it's not the biggest city, you know, ever, but it's kind of a big city. Um, I kind of got cabin fever sometimes being in Berrien Springs. So I'd make my way over to Chicago just to experience some big city life. I, um, I enjoy just meeting Midwestern people. They're just just down like homey people, not like homey like homey home, but like home, like homey people, they just really enjoy their families. Do you guys get me, you guys are you understanding me? All right, good, so um, they in chicago i 'd hang out on the south side, the south side, lots of heritage, very old, um, old buildings, uh, and it 's known for the White sox, no white sox fans out there, I understand um, and also, in the south side, it uh, gets a really bad reputation for lots of gang violence, lots and lots of violence on the south side. Um, sometimes i go over to the north side. The north side has, is where the yuppies live, the young professionals, the yuppies. Um, and they, they, they're there, you know, with the, the little dogs and the condo and, you know, awesome restaurants, though. You can spend some time in the north side of Chicago. The restaurants are pretty amazing. So it was one of these times I was in the north side of Chicago. I was there with some of my friends. One of my friends decided that he needed his fix of caffeine for the day. So he stopped in at a Dunkin' Donuts, which apparently is the Starbucks of the East. Everyone just goes to Dunkin' Donuts for coffee. So we're sitting there in the car. He's inside getting some coffee. And we are watching these Jewish kids uh, leave their academy, cross the street, and come across the Dunkin' Donuts parking lot. And, you know, I think to myself, oh, look, at the kids are uniformed. And it's just, oh, man, it's good to see well-behaved children. Just well-behaved. It's just, you know. So I get, he comes back, we get in the car, and we start pulling away, and the kids are crossing the parking lot far ahead of my car, and one of them locks eyes with me. And as I'm driving, I'm like, should I stop? Should I go? And then he stops in the middle of the road, and he turns to his side, eyes still locked on me, and does this thing, and pretends to shoot at me with his hand forming a gun. And I thought to myself, well, you just ruined a good picture. <laughs> and I'm like, did I just get my life threatened by a 12-year-old in a yarmulke? Like, how is this? how does this work? Like, this just really doesn't look right. And the other thought I had was, man, um, what is going on? You know, I had this good picture of you, and you just ruined it. Are our kids delinquent? Is he, that one kid, a picture of what society of young people is going to? Um, Some of you may have heard this before. And if you've heard this before, if you're here in first service, please refrain from stating out loud who the author of this quote is or when it was said. It goes like this. Our youth now love luxury. They have bad manners and contempt for authority. They show disrespect for their elders and love chatter in place of exercise. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. Now, I don't, I just, that one doesn't, did you guys used to do that? Did you rise when the elders entered the room? Like, how does that work? Do you just stand? Were you supposed to offer your seat, or it was just a, a sign of respect, correct? Yes, okay. That one missed me just a little bit. Um, um, they contradict their parents. Parents, do they contradict you? Never, right? They, they never contradict their youth pastor. I don't know what you guys are talking about, um, which they actually do a lot. Um, they chatter before company, gobble up their food, and tyrannize their teachers. Are any of their teachers in here? Do you feel tyrannized at all? Is that true? Some days, oh, they're being nice to you guys. You guys should be nice to them. So, who was the author of this quote? Socrates. Thousands of years ago. Like, seriously. And one will argue that thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago, whenever Socrates was writing, um, one will argue that the general view of older adults towards young people today probably hasn't changed much. I mean, that really could have been written this morning, and some of you would agree with me, correct? Um, Ecclesiastes says, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there really nothing new under the sun when it comes to our young people? Um, If you ask me, I'll argue differently. You can disagree with me, but I will argue differently. In fact, I will stand up for our minors, delinquent or not. If you look closely, you'll find a generation of young people who care, who care about each other, who just want to make things right with each other, who are sick of the status quo, a generation who wants nothing more than to be in relationship with those around them, who want to be in relationship with you, who want to be in relationship with their family and their friends. And furthermore, if you dig even deeper, you will find a generation of young people who are searching for deep spirituality. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 5 through 9, this is our main text for the day, Deuteronomy 4 Chapter 4, verses 5 through 9, it says this, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this, na- this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Verse 9 says, Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Now, what I've said, what I'm about to say, I've said before in a sermon, um, but I just really think it's really important. I don't know if I said it here or if I said it somewhere else, but I think it's really important. See, this verse talks about um, the the Israelites. They have just come out of slavery, and they actually have gone through a lot in the desert, and they've learned a lot in the desert, and they're about to take the land that they're going to possess. And the Lord is saying, hey, remember your young people. Remember all the things that you've learned, the laws. Remember your young people and teach them. Because guess what? The people around you are looking to you to see who I am. And when they look at you, they want to see that I am close to you. That's what gels with them. They see because their gods, the pagan gods, they are fearful of them. They have to sacrifice their children to them. They have to do all these crazy acts just to appease their gods. But when they look at the Israelites, they see a God who actually has a relationship with them, a God who has a relationship of love and not fear. And so instead of taking up arms against Israel and taking up arms against creator God, simply because they've heard of how awesome God is, they just want to know God. And not fight. They're intrigued and interested in a God who has a relationship with his people. And that is a relationship of love and a re- not a relationship of fear. But often, time and time again, Israel fails to show their relationship of love with God. And often, time and time again, the credibility of God is lost in the nation of Israel. And the reputation of God is destroyed. So let me ask you something. Are there ways that we, as Christians, fail to accurately depict the character of God? Are there days when the reputation of God is tarnished by the sheer fact that we woke up that morning, decided to be nasty, but decided to carry our Christian name along with it? How many horrible wars, crimes, and actions, past and present, have been committed in the name of Yahweh God. I'll venture to say, and you're free to disagree with me, youth, high school, youth, junior high, you guys aren't in here? Are you guys in here? Do you guys come to church? Are you here? Yes. Amen. All right. That's good. I would say make some noise, but that would be like concert status, and that's, this is a sanctuary. So don't do that. Um, you can't disagree with me, all right? But, you know, your parents can. That's all right. Um, I'll venture to say that our young people are leaving the church because we as the Christian family have tarnished the reputation of God. Not all the time, but often. And we've made God a four-letter word among the communities of young people. Now, I'm kind of a fan of statistics, and I understand statistics can be twisted and turned to make them say whatever you want, but sometimes you see sheer numbers and it's really hard to ignore it. Um, now I want—I'm going to go through some stats, and I want you to think back when you were my age and younger, and what you thought of the church back then. And when I say my age, I will give you a reference. I was born in April of '85. I'll let you do the math. See, now I don't want I hear the laughter. I see, i hear. I don't want any of you to know oh, he's such a baby. Oh. I will leave. I will stop It's 12:06, and I'm hungry. I will leave. But here are the numbers. All right. Here are the numbers. All right. This was um, done by uh, the Barna Group. The Barna Group is an organization that does, um, uh, that surveys the Christian atmosphere in America as well as Christian Christianity among young people and spirituality among young people. And here's one of the surveys they said. Here are some words and phrases that people could use to describe a religious faith. By the way, this is from the book called UnChristian. Um, please indicate if you think... Each of these phrases describes present-day Christianity. They asked Americans ages 16 to 29. The first column is non-Christians. It's a little blurry. Maybe you can see that. The second column is churchgoers. And one of the phrases, top of the, top of the, top of the chart, phrases that describes present-day present Christianity is anti-homosexual. Definitely a hot topic. Definitely controversial topic. Definitely something that's always in the news. So Christianity is associated with that. Absolutely at the top. Right after that, judgmental. Eighty-seven percent of non-Christians believe that Christians, they relate that phrase with present-day Christianity. Fifty-two percent of churchgoers, that's people who are actually here. That's you guys, by the way. You would classify yourselves as churchgoers, right? You can respond, right? <laughs> yes. All right. Very good. Um, Hypocritical, hypocritical, saying one thing, doing another. That's the third one down. Eighty five percent of non Christians and forty seven percent of churchgoers describe present day Christianity as hypocritical. Below that we have old fashioned, too involved in politics, out of touch with reality, insensitive to others, and boring. I'm offended. Not accepting of other faiths, and sixty one percent of non Christians said that Christianity is confusing, which is a little odd. You know, you just don't think, Ah, it's kind of confusing, so I just won't even bother with it. But what I want to talk about, actually, is the third one, hypocritical, saying one thing and doing another. Let's go on to the next next slide. Um, This was a survey done to uh, people, and they asked, these are people who actually, they asked them, do you know a Christian personally? Are you close friends with a Christian? And 84% of the people they asked said, Yes, I am very close friends with a Christian. And they asked them, All right, you 84% people who know a Christian, how many percentage of those Christians do you see a lifestyle difference? Well, only 15% of them do we actually see a lifestyle difference in how they live their lives. And so we think back on the chart that was just before that, something like 85% of people think that we're hypocritical. And you jump to a survey, this one, where it says, yeah, I know a really good Christian. I know a Christian really well. But, eh, I don't really see a lifestyle difference between a Christian and somebody who doesn't follow Christ. And we wonder why people think that we're hypocritical. Let's go to the next The next slide. Um, Important Christian priorities. This was actually asked to born-again Christians. Um, I don't know if you would consider yourself a born-again Christian or an evangelical Christian. Uh, Slightly different description when it comes to these surveys. But we'll put ourselves in this. Sure, why not? Lifestyle was the most important Christian priority, to do the right thing. Also put as not sinning. 37% of Christians said that. Discipleship, 31%. Evangelism, 25%. Worship, 25%. Relationships, 23%. Service, 18%. Now, I would say if they had asked a younger crowd, relationships and service would definitely start rising to the top because that's what young people really care about these days. Um, stewardship, 4%. Family, faith, discipling your kids. Only 1% of those surveyed thought that that was an important Christian priority. And we wonder why young people leave the church. 10% are not sure what's important. If you look carefully, you'll see that being judgmental and hypocritical is at the top of the first list. And that's the perception of Christianity from outsiders because there's a correlational difference. They don't see a difference between people inside the kingdom and people outside the kingdom. And so they just go ahead and label us as hypocritical. Maybe if you are like this lady, I hope not. Let's see, if... Uh, the story goes like this. An honest man was being tailgated by a stressed-out woman on a busy boulevard. Suddenly, the light turned yellow just in front of him. He did the right thing, stopping at the crosswalk even though he could have beaten the red light by accelerating through the intersection. The tailgating woman hit the roof and the horn, screaming in frustration as she missed her chance to get through the intersection. As she was still in mid-rant, she heard a tap on her window and looked up to face looked up into the face of a very serious police officer. The officer ordered her to exit her car, and with her hands up, he took her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a holding cell. A couple of hours, after a couple of hours, the policeman approached the cell and opened the door. She was escorted back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. He said... You know, I'm very sorry for this mistake. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, flipping off the guy in front of you, and cussing a blue streak at him. And I noticed the Choose Life license plate holder, the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker, the Follow Me to Sunday School bumper sticker, and the chrome-plated Christian Fish emblem on the trunk. Naturally, I thought the car was stolen. Now, okay, that's exactly why I have none of those things on the back of any of my cars. (laughs) But it's full of NASCAR stickers, so you'll know what's important to me. So, um, that's not true, by the way. I don't want you guys to go home and start tweeting. If you have a problem with anything I say, email jciccarelli at... (laughs) And so we come full circle back to Deuteronomy. Man, 1%, 1% of those surveyed said that it's important to teach the next generation. And we wonder why. It's because within ourselves, within our own community, within the community of people who have been Christians for a while, there seems to be somewhat of a disconnect between our God's story. Back in Deuteronomy, we hear God's instructions to us, not to let the instructions, God's laws, God's love, God's justice, God's closeness to his people. Hey, don't let it fade from your hearts. But teach it to your children, and it seems that as we allow God's instructions to fade from our lives, we often, like the lady in the illustration, forget to take off our Christianity labels, and that's the reputation that God gets. And impressionable young people notice. They see our empty shells, and they see it, and they label it as hypocritical shells, and. And because we have nothing to give, because there's nothing inside, because we're not passing it along, our impressionable young people notice us. And only 1% think to disciple their own children. And we scoff at the delinquency of young people, and we say, oh, the young people are leaving the church, what can we do, what can we do? And we forget to look at ourselves and say, maybe I'm the reason why. The young people are leaving the church. Now some of you at this time are thinking, man, Pastor Feedy, this is a very dreary sermon. You know, this is kind of, we're going to leave here really down, and it's just, you know, what are we going to do? And, you know, thanks for getting our spirits up on this Sabbath day. Oh, it was actually sunny today, but, you know, it's a little cloudy in the church. Listen, I urge you not to think of this as a personal problem. I urge you to think of this as a communal problem. You know, God, when, when God was working with the Israelites, whenever one person sinned, guess what? He held the whole community accountable to the sin of one person. And so think of this as a communal problem, as a community problem, something that we need to be aware of, both young and old. If you have kids or if you don't, it's something we absolutely need to be aware of. Besides, nothing can change if we just bury our heads in the sand and pretend that we're okay. What do they say? The first step to recovery is is acknowledgement, is admitting that there is a problem. And so what is the recovery? What is the solution? There's no one-size-fits-all solution to the problem of young people wanting to live outside God's kingdom. But there are some principles we can think about. And we can try to implement these principles into our church and our families. Godly, biblical, yet practical principles. And if we want our young people to embrace the kingdom of God, and if we want them to live kingdom lives, first we have to begin with ourselves. The whole book of James talks about this spiritual disconnect between what we know in our heads and what we do with our feet. It says this in James chapter 2, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. One scholar writes an interesting piece about conversion, specifically in the book, of, about conversion in the book of Luke's, Luke and Acts. And this gets a little bit wordy. Try and follow. It's a very good point. Um, maybe some of the college professors out there will be able to follow a little better because you guys write stuff like this. But... Um, Try, and I had to read it for several years going through, but that's okay. Try and follow, follow this, and we'll, we'll wrap it up as it goes through. It says this, two consequences immediately follow. Talking about conversion, talking about becoming a Christian, essentially, if we're going to translate it into our day and age. First, who we are can never be divided into parts. To speak of conversion or becoming a Christian, more basically of religious or moral formation, is always to speak of persons And not parts of persons. You can't divide it. Transformation of my inner person can be nothing more or less than transformation of me. Understood holistically, this perspective takes seriously not only biblical witness to holistic anthropology, but also neuroscientific research. Uh Uh-oh, he brought science into this. If identity is grounded in consistency of memory, if the differentiating marks of the human person are the development of consciousness, individuality within community, self-consciousness, and the capacity to make decisions on the basis of self-deliberation, planning and action on the basis of that decision... And taking responsibility for these decisions and actions, I will say that again, taking responsibility for these decisions and actions, and if these have a neural substrate, then we can speak only of human existence fully embodied. What is crucial for our purposes is this. If the capacities uniquely constitutive of the human being are biologically anchored processes, if what makes us singularly human is the complexity of the human brain, or better, the properties and capacities that have this complex brain as their anatomical basis, then there can be no transformation that is not fully embodied. If we're using our brains to capacity, and it's part of our process as humans of discovering ourselves, any kind of transformation has to be fully embodied it's a change in your head as well as your heart as well as your life earlier in this same paper he talks of conversion a little bit more simply he says conversion or becoming a christian is not a theological abstraction but rather aimed at transformation of day-to-day patterns of thinking feeling believing and behaving now, some of you may begin to pick up stones claiming, hey, this guy is moving towards salvation by works. I urge you to put the stones down. They hurt. Um, that's not where I'm going with this. But this is what I am saying, and it's probably blunt and it's really hard to hear. But God looks at the inside, correct? We have no doubt about that, right? God looks at the inside, right? Talk to me. I see heads nodding, but I'm a very, like, yes. person. Yes. Thank you, Joy. You can always count on Joy. Um, But when was the last time your children read your mind? Now, some of you think your children can read your mind, and some of you definitely can read your children's mind. It doesn't go back the other way very well. But um, what it's saying is this. Your children can only see what you do. And that's what they learn from the most. It's a transformation of day-to-day patterns, thinking, believing, and behaving. And that is, um, and that is what I call um, practical solution, practical probable solution number one. And like I said, there is no one thing. There is no one uh, answer, one-size-fits-all answer to this. That's why I said probable solution. I'm covering my own. I'm good. I can be a politician now, can't I? No? Okay. That's all right. I don't want to be. Um, Practical probable solution number one. Let them experience your faith. Your day-to-day patterns of thinking, feeling, believing, and behaving should mirror what you believe about the character of God, about the testimony of Jesus in Scripture. What you think and believe should be part of your everyday Is your faith, what does your faith look like? That's the question that they're asking you. What does your faith look like? Is it a condemning faith? Is it a judgmental faith? Is it a hypocritical faith? Is it a faith that points all people to the cross and back to Jesus? Is it a faith that cares for others? Is it a faith that speaks the truth in love? In Deuteronomy chapter 4, where it says, don't let it fade from your heart. The literal translation is, don't let it withdraw from your heart. Don't let the law of God, the character of God, pull away from your heart. You have to keep it in. It's an active action of keeping the law of God in your heart. And you do that by living it. Ellen White says in Our Higher Calling, page 263, Fathers and mothers, teach your children that the only way to be truly happy is to love and fear God and enforce the lesson by your example. Let them see the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. Hello. Let them see the peace of Christ ruling in your heart and that his love pervades your life. And so we come to the teach it part, the next part of the verse in Deuteronomy. Teach it. What does that mean? I know some of us, we would love, we would absolutely love to just brainwash our kids, right? It would just, amen, definitely. (laughs) It would be really convenient, but guess what? Not only is it illegal, but that's the easiest way to make them want to rebel against you. Because one day they'll figure out that, hey, I haven't been making my own choices, and I want to do that in the worst way possible. And so... There's another way of doing this. How can we teach God's principles to our offspring? I'm a big fan of teachable moments. As you're going through the day, um, as Jesus went through his day, he used teachable moments all the time. A fig tree and a mustard shrub become lessons on faith. Healing, fishing, roosters, they all became moments where he could teach his disciples who he is and what his mission is here on earth. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 7 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your your strength. Amen. These commandments I give you today, they are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. Talk about them when you're having dinner. Talk about them when you're hanging out. Talk about them when you walk along the road, when you go for a walk, when you go for a run, when you go for a bike ride. When you lie down, when you put your kids to bed, talk about them, talk about them, talk about them. When you get up, talk about them. What is the point of this verse? Talk about them. Talk to your kids. It means vocally acknowledging the presence of God in the everyday. And yes, shamelessly, I just referenced one of my past sermons. Every day, glory. The glory of God that you get every single day. You know what? I just, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to call you up. Pastor Lou is sitting over there. Pastor Lou was actually one of my mentors in undergrad, Pastor Lou Gray. He, um, I was an intern in his church for nine months, it was. And I love his email address. I'm not going to tell you at what it is because then you'll send him bad stuff about me. But it says... Um, Lou say glory, right? Is that correct? And this guy says glory every day. And I just was really inspired by that. It's a way to acknowledge the presence of God every day. And guess what? Your kids are looking for that from you. They want to see it. They want to see you acknowledging the presence of God every day. Family worship, it's important. I would say this is solution 1.5. I won't go into it a lot. But family worship is definitely important making it interesting, having open conversation about the day, having open conversation about the faith, getting a chance to exegete your children, getting a chance to know where your children stand, gauging their spiritual thermometer. Just one of these days, you know, somebody taught me how to do this. When you are with your child, ask them, how's your faith? And try and find out what they're going to say. And listen, don't start talking after that, because that's what we do. We just love to talk. How is your faith? Because let me tell you what your faith should be. (laughs) Absolutely not. Just say, how is your faith? And let them talk. Make family worship interesting. Gauge them. See what's going on in their minds. But just as important, definitely don't let the teachable moments pass. Hey, guess what else is a teachable moment? When we as adults, as mentors, as when we fail, when we fall flat, when we mess up, and then when we fess up, that is some of the biggest teachable moments your kids will ever have. And when they mess up, and when they have to fess up, another huge teachable moment for you and the young people around you. So practical probable solution number two, remember it's probable, there's no one-size-fits-all. Take advantage of teachable moments that point your children to Jesus and give practi- practical examples of faith lived out. Ellen White writes again about the home, saying, Parents, now is the time to form in your children habits of industry, self-reliance, and self-control to cultivate economy and business tech. Guess what? Some of you have some kids who are freshmen in college, right, who are now out on their own for the first time. I really hope you taught them how to do laundry because... Uh, That could be a problem. Um, Now is the time to teach them courtesy and benevolence toward their fellow men and reverence and love for God. Home should be the most sunny and attractive spot on earth. It may be made such by pleasant words and kind acts, and underlying all, the foundation of it all, a steadfast adherence to the right. Let us withhold nothing from him, Jesus, who gave us his precious life for us. Fathers and mothers, bring to him, bring to Jesus, your children in the freshness and bloom of youth. And devote them to his service. Devote your kids to Jesus' service. So how do we keep our children around in our community in Cala Mesa, How does that work? How do we keep our children around? How do we keep our young people connected to the kingdom? Their first offense is definitely your home. The first place where your children experience Jesus is not across the parking lot in the fireside room. It's not farther up the street at Mesa Grande Academy or down the street at Loma Linda Academy or Redlands Adventist Academy. The first place they experience Jesus is the home. Now, a lot of us have been homeschooled, right? I know there's a bunch of homeschoolers in here. Holler. Any homeschoolers? I was homeschooled for a long time. I am a homeschooled one. That's the... Thing where all of your work is homework, you know, alternative education. It's great. So in a way, our, our communities have embraced homeschool, but what we have not embraced oftentimes is home church. Home church cannot be ignored. As, as a youth pastor in this congregation, I have your kids. I see them about two to three hours a week. If I'm doing Bible studies with them, I see them a little longer. If I am uh, doing a trip with them on an event, I see them a little longer than that. But your teachers, the teachers here, they see your kids a lot more than I do. And even they have influence on your kids. Your kids see their friends. But guess what? Of all of the people that I've just named Only one person has more influence on your kids besides them. It's you. You have the most influence on your kids. What you do matters. So make sure you home church your kids. Turn the home, turn your lives into a sanctuary where they will feel loved, safe, and learn the love of God. And don't think that just because you have no children, you're off the hook. As a church, we can work together to make church more like the home, where family is important, where the wise mentor the young, where we continue to speak the truth in love, and where the kingdom of God dictates all relevance and truth, where the love of God makes church and home one. I want to end. Something happened. I got a text in between services, and I want to end with this story because it's just so relevant to what happened right now. Um, I've spoken before of my time in Berrien Springs. I wanted to work off-campus so I can meet the, you know, the homey Michigan people. So I worked at the YMCA down in Niles and I was a lifeguard. It was a great time. I worked there with all high school kids. It was me, two other adults, and the rest of the staff was high school kids. So at that time I called them my kids. That was my youth group. My workplace was my youth group. And I really, those three guys that I would work with all the time, I really poured into them. In fact, There was one guy, his name, I won't tell you his name, but I was supposed to work with him on Sundays, and I really didn't want to because anybody who's a NASCAR fan knows that. That's when the race is on. Thank you very much. But I sacrificed and I said, you know what, I really want to pour into this guy. And so I worked with him for two and a half hours, just one two and a half hour shift on Sundays. There was him, there was another guy, there was three of them that I just really poured into them. And I've spoken to the youth before, and I think I've said to you guys before that, at some point, I asked them, so, how is your faith? I never had a Bible study with them. I never went to church with them. All I could do was just be with them. And I asked them, how is your faith? And one of them said, you know what? I think of church a lot like Facebook. Everyone's just so fake on there. And he was speaking specifically about a church in, 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 um, in Niles, not Niles, Michigan, South Bend, Indiana, which is just down the street, and it was his Congregation where his grandmother took him, and he's like, You know, I don't want to go there anymore. It's a big, beautiful, elaborate church, big, beautiful, elaborate services, but it's Facebook church. Everyone shows up and puts this mask on, and I'm just sick of it. And he actually would not get on Facebook because of that. So, guess what I got this morning from him? A Facebook invite. I was like, Whoa, this guy is on Facebook. Welcome. I said, Welcome. Don't get addicted. As we all do. He sends me a message back. He's like, hey, it's good to hear from you. You know what? I've been thinking of our conversations, and I'm going into college next year, and I've really decided that I want to go to a Christian college. Can you suggest one? I didn't have one sermon with this kid. I never gave him a Bible study. All I could do was pray for him and just be with him. They're looking at you. They're looking at us. They want to experience life with us and experience life together. As we become one with each other, as we become one with God, as we become one with what we believe, and as we pass it on to those who are one with us, our children, they will get to know the kingdom better. And you are doing that. You are doing that. I get to spend time with your kids, and they're wonderful. You guys are doing that. And I praise the Lord for that. Let's love our kids into the kingdom. Amen. Show God, may we be a congregation that embraces you, embraces the mission of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ and what God has taught us through Jesus Christ. May we be a congregation that passes it forward to our children in Jesus' name.